From the courtroom to the tabloids, welcome to All Rise, the podcast that lets you be the jury. We will discuss and debate provocative celebrity news stories, court cases, political controversies, crime, and other hot topics of the day. With on-the-scene correspondence, officials directly related to the issue, and a panel of guests that will leave no evidence to the imagination, All Rise swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Your host, Dylan Howard. A monster dad strangling his two young children before hiding their bodies along with that of their pregnant mother in oil tanks. America's most hated dad, Christopher Lee Watts, charged with murder. We go inside the mind of this evil individual. What provoked him to commit this heinous crime? Plus, we have a bombshell interview with Bonnie Lee Bakley's daughter. She, of course, was the woman who was murdered in 2001 in California. Her husband, Beretta superstar Robert Blake, charged with the brutal execution. He was ultimately found not guilty and beat a murder rap. But she now says, Robert Blake murdered my mum and stole my sister. That explosive interview is coming up. Plus, our in-depth interview of the episode is with one of the nation's most prominent defence attorneys, Jose Baez. You'll remember his name from the Casey Anthony trial. You'll remember his name from the Aaron Hernandez trial. You'll remember his name fighting to clear Aaron Hernandez for the conviction for the murder of Odin Lloyd. He joined me for an explosive and exclusive one-on-one interview. No question off the table. I have questions for him about whether Aaron Hernandez was gay, as the rumour mill said. Whether or not his homosexual repressed feelings may have led to his jailhouse suicide. And did he indeed have a gay jailhouse lover? No question is off the limits as Jose Baez goes one-on-one on All Rise. It is a case that has haunted Hollywood for decades. Bonnie Lee Bakley was gunned down in a turbulent shootout in the head and shoulder while sitting in a car outside an Italian restaurant in Studio City, California on May 4, 2001. Her husband, Hollywood superstar Robert Blake, was charged with the brutal execution murder. Although he beat a murder rap, In the criminal court, the In Cold Blood star, that's haunting, isn't it? He starred in In Cold Blood, was later held responsible for Bonnie's death in a civil action. Now the case is hitting headlines again because Holly Goron, who is the daughter of Bonnie Lee Bakley, is speaking out and speaking out for the first time in years. Holly joins me on the line for an All Rise exclusive interview. Thank you very much for your time, Holly. Thank you. You recently made a visit to your mother's grave. Why did you do that? I did. I was finally able to go back to her grave this month. It's been 12 years since I visited. Um, You know, she's not buried anywhere near me, and I don't get that opportunity very often. Um, I'm recently engaged, and uh, I've been thinking a lot about how much she's missed, how many milestones in my life, my daughter's life. She only had one grandchild, and uh, she hasn't been here with us. So um, it's very saddening that I can't invite her to my wedding, and she can't be part of our lives. My daughter's birthday is tomorrow. She's turning 13 now. So it's been a long 17 years since the murder. Now, the photos of this grave visit are in the latest issue of the National Enquirer, where you laid a bouquet of flowers on your mother's grave. A long-forgotten grave, I should say. You also visited the crime scene outside Vitello's, that restaurant, and laid a rose on the spot where your mother died, which is just 10 minutes from Blake's home. Were you scared to actually return to these locations? Yes, yes. I'm always full of fear and anxiety and paranoia. Just being in that area... brings back such overwhelming feelings of it's just a it's a horror 
Now, many believe that Robert Blake cheated justice by being acquitted with the murder charge in court. How do you think that he was able to orchestrate an acquittal given that there was overwhelming evidence? And how do you believe he was involved in the murder of your mother? Well, you know, she was set up. He set her up. He didn't want her having a child. She did it anyway. And um, it caused a lot of problems between them. They weren't married for very long. It was all part of his ploy to get her under his control so that he could kill her. It was a setup. You know, he's not a good guy. He never even took an acting role portraying one. And um, he did all of this to lead up to his defense for the murder. He knew charges would be brought against him. He's the only one who knew where she was, where she lived, and where she would be on the night she was killed. He was the only one responsible. Do you think he He pulled the trigger, though? I can't say definitely that he was the one that did it. I didn't witness it. We don't have any witnesses that did. And there's no way to know if one of the people he tried to hire actually did it for him. But what we do know is all the evidence, all the evidence goes back to him. He set her up. He had the motive. And he absolutely was responsible Some people believe that he may have indeed hired hitmen to rid himself of your mother. Is that a plausible theory that you think may have happened? I have no way of knowing. I can't point to any one person. He had so many people involved. Some people suggest that there there is new evidence. Indeed, on this very podcast, a private investigator who worked on the case said that he believed that there was evidence that could be turned over to authorities and that Robert Blake could help bring an end to this unsolved mystery by identifying people that were potentially the hitmen. He can't be tried in this murder case again because of double jeopardy laws in California. But if he does have information, in my view, law enforcement should convene a grand jury. He should be given immunity because he can't be tried again but potentially those that pulled the trigger, if they were hitmen, could be brought to justice. Would you like to see that happen? I would love to know the truth. Absolutely. I want the truth to be known, and eventually it will come out. I believe eventually the truth will always come out. And um, if he were going to do that and someone got convicted, I would be happy to know what really happened. But I don't see that happening because he is guilty. He had a part in it. And I don't think that would clear his name or he would have any reason to point the finger at anyone. Holly Gorin, I know it's very difficult to relive such a high-profile case and to make that pilgrimage from uh, your home uh, in southeastern U.S. to the Forest Lawn Cemetery in Los Angeles. Tragic circumstances behind this case, unanswered questions, fractured relationships. You know, I read that Robert has kept you from your half-sister, Rose, who was just two years of age at the time of the murder. My heart goes out to you in the search of justice. I hope that one day, Holly, you can get the answers you so desperately need. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your time. Unanswered questions. There are plenty when it comes to an horrific murder of two daughters, a mother and an unborn child. A Colorado man strangling daughters aged four and three. His name, Chris Watts, now the most despised man in America. How did police go about catching a killer? Well, I'm going to introduce you to a theory, a theory of crocodile tears. And we're going to explore after the break how murderers, cold-blooded killers, attempt to conceal guilt by making emotional public appeals for information. We'll have that story next. What makes somebody that is a cold-blooded killer deceive us all? With barefaced lies, standing before the world and trying to get away with murder. 
We are going to attempt to find out what makes them tick as we talk to one of the nation's leading experts to take us inside the mind of a killer and how far they'll go to cover their crimes before it all comes to a crashing end. And the case we're talking about is that of Chris Watts, the man in Colorado who has been charged with the murder of his wife and his two children. Now, let's set the stage. Chris Watts was staying with friends of the couple after his wife Shannon and the girls were reported missing. He proactively coordinated media interviews. In fact, in one interview, he told a detailed version of what he claims happened when Shannon and their daughters Bella and Celeste went missing, including that he and his wife had, quote, an emotional conversation before he allegedly last saw her. Let's take a listen to his interview. It's, I want, I want them wherever they're at. Like, I have no inclination to where they're at right now. Like, I've exhausted, like, every friend that I know of and every friend that I have has called friends that Shanann has that maybe I didn't know about. And it's just like, there's, it's like, it's vanished. Like, she's not, like, when I got home yesterday, it was like a ghost town. Like, she wasn't here. Kids weren't here. I have no idea, like, where they went. And it doesn't, it's just earth-shattering. I don't feel like this is even real right now. It's like a nightmare that I just can't wake up from. Joining me now is Dr. Jeffrey Gardere, who is a psychologist and I must say one of the most prolific and sought-after experts in his field, someone who has appeared on every network under the sun, including Fox, The Today Show, MSNBC, CNN, and my favourite, Reels. Dr. Jeff Gardere, Tell me about this notion. I call it crocodile tears. I saw it in a case in Australia, my homeland, many years ago when a father who murdered his children and his wife stood before the cameras and professed that he was innocent. What runs through someone's mind to take these types of steps? I think you're looking at someone who certainly um, uh, has uh, uh, the traits of a sociopath if not being a full-blown sociopath, um, and we've seen this kind of behavior before, uh, appropriately, as you call it, the crocodile tears uh, in front of the nation, making a case to get their loved ones back uh, when, in fact, they had uh, something to do, if not actually directly being involved in the murders of their loved ones. Uh, What we do see is uh, in some ways, they're trying to even convince themselves that their missing uh, relatives have not uh, met up with foul play. They try to convince themselves that they are actually victims uh, and themselves um, the person doing the crying. Uh, and therefore, uh, they're making a plea to the world to try to understand the pain that they're going through. I, I almost call it a split mind, a, mm. a denial uh, as to what's going on, where they're invested uh, in every shape uh, and fashion to believing uh, the story that they've made up even though they are the main protagonist. It may be the only way that they're able to actually stand in front of people, actually live with uh, these uh, incredible, horrific crimes that they've committed, uh, especially against their loved ones. The irony of the situation is it's almost like a red flag to law enforcement when they see someone be so proactive. I mean, it kind of brings me back to the, the Ben Affleck film, Uh, Gone Girl, which typically portrayed this type of behaviour. So to law enforcement, to see someone who they suspect could have been involved in the commission of these crimes, it's a telltale sign. It's absolutely a telltale sign uh, because think about it. If someone, God forbid, were ever in a situation of where their loved ones were missing, they want to work behind the scenes with the police in trying to find out what happened. Uh, They would be grieving privately if they felt that their loved ones met up with foul play. They would be trying to reach out to other family members. Uh, They may be so distraught, and this is the key here, so distraught with grief and fear uh, and even rage as to what may have happened to their loved ones 
that they don't have time to be prissy in front of a camera to try to um, uh, portray themselves as victims when, in fact, we know who the true victims are. So, yes, it's a telltale sign. Anyone who's investing that kind of energy to want to be in front of all these cameras, it's so narcissistic. It is a telltale sign of a sociopathic or psychopathic individual who has something to be guilty about. Now, what? I mean, this case is eerily similar to Scott Peterson, but I want to say Watts has emphatically told police that he did strangle his wife. He loaded her and their daughter's bodies into the back seat of his truck. He drove to an oil work site and buried Shannon near two tanks and dumped the girls inside the oil tanks, according to a police affidavit. However, what he has said is that, yes, he was responsible for strangling his pregnant wife, Shannon, in a rage after he saw her strangling their daughter, three-year-old Celeste. He told police that he saw via the baby monitor that their oldest daughter, Bella, four, was sprawled out on her bed and black and blue. He said his murder or strangulation of his wife was in retribution to what she had done to her two children. And I wanted to ask you this question. If someone is a narcissistic, sociopathic liar, is he still concocting a story in an attempt to worm and weave his way out of what is inevitably the end of the road. Absolutely. Uh, and, and his story doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't make sense to the audience. It doesn't make sense to the world. I mean, first of all, we don't have any credible proof at this point that his wife had any kind of postpartum depression or psychosis. It appears that she was a great mother to her two children and was not having any uh, emotional issues around carrying the third child um, uh, uh, in her belly. Uh, So there would be no reason for her to want to strangle or kill her children. Secondly, if you see, God forbid, your wife is doing something so crazy and it's so out of character, so out of her nature, and it would have to be since he painted such and they painted such a pretty picture of that family, um, what you would want to do is pull her off of the child, uh, try to uh, immobilize her uh, by holding on to her uh, and then calling the police, uh, not murder her in the way that she supposedly murdered her children. It doesn't make sense. So even at that point, even if he did go over the top, even if there was a temporary insanity, there was rage and he killed her because she supposedly killed their children. What would, what would you think he would do? What would most people say? Well, Oh my God, I don't know what happened. I saw black. Um, you know, now I'm calling the police. Uh, uh, you know, I'll get a lawyer, uh, I'll try to show that, you know, it wasn't something that I wanted to do. That's what someone in that particular position would do as crazy as that sounds, but that's what they would do not further defile the bodies of his wife and his two daughters by putting her in a shallow grave and putting his daughters in an oil tank. But I think they've made a fatal mistake so far in their early defense of this case, and that is Chris Watts and his attorneys, they've requested DNA samples in an effort to try and prove that the daughters were strangled. The implication came in a motion that has been filed by the defense attorneys in court to compel the local coroner to take DNA from the necks and throats of the remains of Bella and Celeste. Now, to me, this is a silly, silly move because it could be the smoking gun evidence. There's going to be the difference between strangulation marks of a woman's hand and strangulation marks of a man's hand. Absolutely. And the jury, uh, when it comes to that, uh, if they find out, in fact, uh, that her DNA uh, in that kind of a way, of course, her DNA is on the children, but her DNA uh, is not showing as part of the strangulation. They will have absolutely no mercy that now they had to, uh, you know, uh, go in and do autopsies and uh, unearth the bodies and so on for the defiling 
the uh, the bodies of his daughters. So it's a really bad move. And you're right. It is a smoking gun. Uh, because most likely, I think most people would believe that uh, it would be his DNA uh, on the uh, necks of uh, his daughter. We don't know for sure, but that's what most people would think. My final question to you, this has eerily similar characteristics to Scott Peterson and the murder of his wife, Stacy and their unborn child. Mm-hmm. Scott Peterson, mm-hmm. as we know, was having an affair with a woman by the name of Amber Frey. Police are suggesting in this case that Watts too was having an affair. According to the unsealed arrest affidavit, investigators say that they discovered Watts was, quote, actively involved, end quote, in an affair with a co-worker. He has denied this in previous interviews, according to the affidavit, but my sources on location are confirming that Watts was indeed romantically involved with a co-worker and that he is lying to cover his backside. Is it feasible that someone like Chris Watts would look at the Scott Peterson case and attempt to emulate it? In some way, if you're looking at someone who may be a um, psychopathic personality, we know that these individuals believe in the, um, the invisible club. In other words, they study the actions of other psychopaths. Uh, they come to admire them. We see that in the school shootings uh, where um, the uh, shooters try to get extra notches on their belt uh, in deference uh, or even in reverence to the people who came before them. So it is not outside of the scope of possibility that he actually knew about uh, the Scott Peterson case very intimately by studying it and either consciously or unconsciously, it manifested itself uh, in his actions. Well, Dr. Jeff Gardet, thank you very much for this insight. I mean, there's just a troubling pattern of pregnant women who are killed by loved ones, and in this case, a dad to strangle his two daughters at age four and three, stuffing their bodies in an oil tank, killing their pregnant Ah, mum. It is frightening, sickening, and really just hits home and makes you think, what has this world come to? Absolutely. Dr. Jeff Gardere, thank you very much for joining us on All Rise. Uh, it is a pleasure, and I thank you so very much. And thank you for bringing clarity to what it is that many pregnant women have to deal with. We know that, by the way, 20% of pregnant women who die, die at the hands of a murderer. Tragic. Well, we look forward to talking to you again on the program, my friend. Thanks again for your time. Thank you, brother. Bye-bye. Bye. A tragic tale indeed. Coming up after the break, we have an exclusive and in-depth interview with the man who won an acquittal verdict for Casey Anthony, defence attorney Jose Baez. Now, some of you will remember that Jose Baez was indeed the defence attorney for NFL superstar Aaron Hernandez who was appealing his conviction for the murder of Odin Lloyd until he took his own life in an apparent suicide in April last year. Baez has publicly stated one unbelievable fact that he says surrounds Aaron's death, and he's going to go one-on-one with All Rise in just a few moments. But before we go there, an update on a story that we have covered on All Rise previously. That is the US Army's investigation into vile war crimes by troops in Afghanistan. In an earlier episode, we spoke to a rogue American soldier who described in vivid detail and provided evidence to suggest that some of his fellow soldiers loaded up enemy corpses with deadly explosives, pulled the trigger and mutilated the war dead. One image in our possession horrifically showed the brain splatter after C4 exploded in the war dead's brain. Now, these shocking pictures and testimony were provided to All Rise by a whistleblowing ex-US Army sergeant who uncovered evidence of this shameful battlefield desecration near the Afghan-Pakistani border during the 2003 tour of duty. Well, I have a stunning update 
from the US Army Criminal Investigation Command, who tell All Rise that they investigated this matter and completed their report on August 2. I quote to you Chris Gray, the Chief of Public Affairs for the USA Criminal Investigation Command in Quantico, Virginia. And he tells me, quote, investigative efforts were unable to determine the origin or circumstances of the photographs and no offenders were identified. The former soldier who reportedly provided the photographs to All Rise declined to speak to CID special agents about the issue or provide any additional information concerning the photographs. The results of the investigation were provided to a supporting trial prosecutor who opined that there was no probable cause to believe that any offence under the Uniform Code of Military Justice had occurred, end quote. So despite the evidence, despite the graphic, vile, shameful abuse of US war soldiers, the US Army has said there is no wrongdoing. Is it a cover-up? Well, you be the judge. After a short break, Jose Baez. My next guest has been likened to Johnny Cochran, the man who was seemingly able to get a not guilty verdict when all odds suggested he wouldn't be able to. Johnny Cochran, of course, was able to get OJ Simpson off his double murder trial. And my next guest, attorney Jose Baez, infamously got the not guilty verdict from the jury in the Casey Anthony trial. But he also represented another high profile defendant, and that was New England Patriots superstar Aaron Hernandez. Jose Baez, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And by the way, it's Juani Cochran because I'm Puerto Rican. (laughs) (laughs) You've released this new book, and it is a revelatory inside story of the trial and final days of Aaron Hernandez. As his attorney, what was Aaron Hernandez like? You know, it's so amazing how far off the storyline is as it relates to Aaron Hernandez. He was he was a big goofball, a big kid, and you know I got to know him in a time of of high stress, which that's when you really get to know someone. And in addition to that, as his lawyer, I got to see his text messages for years, and his computer and his iPad and all of these things. And I, I, we all know when you when you look at someone's phone, you know who they are. And um, I, one of the things that I noticed about him was he never said no. He was one of those people that um, his family, friends, people he barely knew would always ask him for things, and he, was, he just couldn't say no. He was one of those, uh, he was always trying to be a giver and, and very outgoing and, and uh, a caring individual. When you met him, he was already serving a life sentence for murder. You defended him in a second double murder trial that seemingly was a lost cause. However, you were able to solicit from the jury a courtroom win. Do you believe that he was innocent? 1,000%. Why? Well, because the evidence told me so. Uh, There were three witnesses, three independent eyewitnesses that placed him someplace else when the crime occurred. And And there were three other witnesses that gave a description of who was in the car and they described a person with long hair and cornrows. I had, this case had more reasonable doubt than any case I had ever tried. So by, by all means, the, the only evidence actually that they had against him was a snitch who was a drug kingpin who wanted to kill Aaron. So, you know, Aaron's guilty of choosing very badly who he has around him. And unfortunately it, You know, like my mother used to say, you lie down with crap, you're going to come up stinking. It's hard to reconcile then that he would commit suicide if seemingly there was light at the end of the tunnel. And you were quite confident at the time that you would be able to overturn the first conviction of murder in the Odin Lloyd trial. Why would he have committed suicide? You know, that was one of the questions that hit me. I was just as shocked as everyone else. I had spoken with him hours before. What did you say to him hours before? Oh, we talked about the future. I mean, 90% of our conversation was things we were going to do. Uh, his, he was ecstatic. He was e- extremely happy. 
And I include that in the book, and I, I even lay out the last letter he wrote to me, which was written hours before he passed. And in there, you can see he's joking around and really happy. And then just, you'll see the transition in the book where he starts writing his letters to his family, which are suicide letters. And I, I believe, uh, based on the evidence and the research that I've done, that, you know, this was the CTE taking over. We had no idea how bad his brain was damaged until the, until the autopsy and, and the testing of CTE by Boston University. And it was the worst case they had ever seen in someone of his age. Explain what CTE is to the layman. Yeah, CTE is basically a, a disease. It stands for uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Ugh, encephalopathy. I always screw that last one up. Um, and what that basically means is it's repeated head blows. So the head sits, the brain sits in a, in a liquid-like substance inside the skull. And every time there's a tackle or a, 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 head, uh, a blow to the head, the brain rams up against the, the skull. And it's the repeated blows that start to cause damage to the brain. And what's interesting about this is everybody thinks, oh, well, they wear helmets. Well, the helmets just make it worse because the players have this false sense of security. The helmets don't protect the brain. It only protects the skull and, your, and the skin above it from a contusion. And uh, other than a skull fracture, hel helmet's not gonna do anything for you. Repeated blows in practice and in the games are what are causing these football players to lose their minds. So are you suggesting that within a matter of hours, writing something to you that was seemingly upbeat and positive, that the effects of CTE forced him to commit suicide? I believe that the CTE comes and goes in an individual. Uh, they can be seemingly normal one moment, and then another moment they start having these tremendous headaches for which Aaron complained about all the time. Uh, a, a overwhelming migraine type headaches, also memory loss. Uh, there were times that Aaron was sharp as a tack, and then there were times that he would just simply forget, and he would kind of, and we would kind of, I guess, blow it off with his goofiness. Uh, and uh, I, I just simply had no idea how bad it was. But yes, these players are, are, are walking around with a silent killer. And I'd like to add one thing if I can, because in the book I talk about um, the CTE and I talk about children playing football. I'm of the opinion, and I, I know I'm in the minority, but I think it's child abuse to allow your child to play tackle football. We know this game is bad for your brain, but we're gonna allow children to play football. Uh, you Pick your poison, a cigarette for your lungs or football for your brain. I think they're both bad, and I think they're both child abuse. And I don't think that is spoken about enough. And I'm hoping if, if Aaron's death can mean something, that it'll, that it'll spread that message a bit. What was discovered in the autopsy? It was discovered that he uh, had this disease and that it was the worst case they'd ever seen in someone of his age. They described him, his brain as being in the condition of someone who, a 40 plus year old man who had been playing in the, the league for about 18 years. So his brain is unique and, is, and, and has helped their research tremendously. So um, again, that's something that Aaron's family is really happy about, that someday it may save somebody's life. Who's liable? Well, I think if you look at football and you look at the, the NFL's history in, in uh, what they told their players after their research was that they were completely safe and that these risks, everybody says, well, they're grownups, they know the risks they're taking. Um, uh, gone are the days where you can just get paralyzed, and that's the risk you're taking. No, now, uh, here's, here's one where you will absolutely destroy your brain. And uh, the NFL purposely uh, conducted research that they knew was flawed, and um, if you look at the, what they told their players, uh, that they were completely safe, they've quite frankly misled them. 
So is the Hernandez surviving family member suing now? Well, I represent his daughter, his five-year-old daughter, and in a lawsuit for loss of consortium. So we're currently litigating that. Do you think you'll be successful? Oh, I don't take cases to lose them. So what are you suing for? How much money? Well, we're, it's, it's a federal lawsuit that we've included. Um, we don't have a specific damage amount yet because we're, we're not even in the trial posture yet. Would this not give rise to a potential class action? Unfortunately, a class action has been done and the NFL settled for over 700 and I think $80 million. Uh, we believe that Aviel's case falls outside of the class action. So that's why we're suing individually. So let me ask you about the first murder. I mentioned this a little earlier. You said that you were very confident on appeal that Aaron would be acquitted of uh, Odin Lloyd and the murder on appeal. Why did you believe that? Because I don't think that the case was, in, in the book, I sh I sh the book, I should say, is somewhat of a prequel to the Odin Lloyd case, and so was that, because the Boston uh, murders happened before Odin Lloyd. What a lot of people don't realize is that he was prosecuted under what Massachusetts calls the joint venture theory. What that means is they have no idea who pulled the trigger. They can't say Aaron pulled the trigger. And uh, what they did was they prosecuted him on his acts surrounding the murder, which meant going and getting a gun, uh, going out with these guys. But mere presence, presence at a murder is not a crime. Um, what, what the jury didn't know is that he was being hunted by a drug dealer, Alexander Bradley. And um, Alexander Bradley was sending him text messages telling him he was going to kill him, show, uh, explaining the weapons that he had and, and that he had a crew of people who were uh, willing to take care of him, all of these things. And um, that was never before the jury. So his lawyers couldn't explain why this guy who is hanging around these thugs who we now know he was hanging around them for protection and why is he getting a gun to go out? Well, the, the fact is Aaron was going everywhere with a gun at that time because of the Bradley threats and he even went so far as to ask the Patriots to trade him. So tell me about that. He, in this book, you suggest that he spoke to Bill Belichick and wanted to be traded from the Patriots. Sure. I don't suggest it. I flat out say it. And the reason for that is uh, the, the, the police spoke with Bill Belichick, and we know this meeting did occur. Uh, Aaron actually flew to the Combine in Indianapolis, hopped on a plane. He was in so, such fear for his life. He hopped on a plane during the offseason and went and met his coach in another state. Uh, his agent also confirmed that he wanted a trade, and he was he was basically told no, uh, and and they sent him off to uh, get another apartment. They suggested, and that's the infamous flop house that they called, where they thought Aaron would just go to do drugs. Well, the, the fact is that's a place he went, and he got to try and feel safe to be away from his family, so that if Alexander Bradley uh, came around, he wouldn't be there. So let's talk about drugs. There have been many suggestions that Aaron was a frequent user of illicit drugs. And indeed, I've been inside the prison where he ultimately took his life. And I've spoken to inmates there and guards there who say that the, the, the jail is overrun with drugs, that people smuggle drugs in and the such. Your book says that you promised to reveal new details about Aaron's personal life that weren't shared at trial. Before I get to what those revelations were, was Aaron a drug user? Aaron smoked a lot of weed. That was his thing. Uh, he smoked it for the recreational use, and he also smoked it for pain management while playing football. That's not new. Lots of players do that. Um, I can say this much. He was an avid marijuana smoker. I've heard rumors about other types of drugs, uh, but I can tell you this. He was constantly urine tested all the time. And, the, and other than marijuana, nothing has ever come up on, on Aaron, including his toxicology results for his autopsy. There were no drugs in his system. You know, sometimes the rumors um, turn themselves into facts in the headlines, but in this case, that wasn't 
I want to get into some of the rumours, but you promised in the book to reveal new details about Aaron's personal life that weren't shared at trial. I what are the takeaways? Well, the takeaways was who he really was. I mean, in the book, you're going to learn a lot more about who this individual was, not the storyline of he was a thug, a gangster, and all of these things. And that's another misstatement uh, about him. When he was originally brought into the prison, they conducted an investigation to see if he had any gang affiliations because they didn't want to put him with the wrong gang or put him with a gang. So explain that, like behind bars, what's it like? There are gangs, there are segmented uh, areas. Absolutely, and in this I get into with the book because his prison life was an eventful one at that. Um, they evaluated him at first and they checked to see his, if he had any gang affiliations and they found out that he had zero gang affiliations. Now, while in prison, after a while, he needed, he felt he needed to align himself with a group because um, he, being a celebrity and being big, you're a target. And it, people were constantly trying to pick fights with him, trying to, you know, if you want to make a name for yourself in prison, you go pick a big guy, much less a big guy who's a celebrity, and you'll make a name for yourself. So he, he had to toughen up. He had to fight back. And, and that's what Aaron did. And, and, you know, he got written up for it many, many times. He and I talked about it, and I kept trying to tell him, look, you know, um, try and stay away as best you can. And, and, and one of the things he did do was he did back off, and, and he advised everybody in the prison that he wasn't rolling with anyone anymore. He was going to try and walk the straight and narrow. Is it true that at one point he was the head of one of the gangs inside the prison? No, that's not true. That's not true. He he rolled with a gang for a, for a short period of time, uh, but what gang was that? It's one I can't. That's one I don't disclose, disclose or get into. You know, snitching is not a part of my <laughs> not a part of my business. So all I can say is that he was with a, a group, and he denounced that membership. It, it, it's interesting because after his first conviction, he was down, and he thought, "I'm going to spend the rest of my life here." And that's when he realized he needed to affiliate himself with, with a group. But after some time and, 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 uh, and Shayana get, trying to give him hope and staying by his side, he turned his act around and that's when he called me. That's when he decided to write his letter to me and say, you know what, I don't want to stay here for the rest of my life. I want to try and fight for my freedom. And he stepped back from the gang and he, he started focusing on his case and he, he turned, his, turned his prison life around. One of the more heartbreaking revelations in the book and has been the subject of a lot of gossip and innuendo for some time is about Aaron's sexuality. It was also suggested that prosecutors were going to question Aaron and his fiance about affairs with another woman and a man. What can you tell us about all of this? Well, I, I want to be clear that in the book, I only address issues dealing with, um, for example, the prosecutors, what they were trying to do. I, I, I thought I felt obligated to disclose that because at some point that was going to come out and I would rather it be told truthfully. And then I address what Shay's remarks are about their, his sexuality. To me, I believe that Aaron's sexuality is, is a private matter between him and Shay. So in the book, I only disclose or discuss those two things. I can tell you that the prosecutors believed that they had a woman in Arizona who, um, who claimed that Aaron had written her a letter uh, claiming to be gay and that um, he could no longer speak with her or be with her. Um, this was some kind of a, I guess, pen pal romance. And I don't know if, if, I don't know what Aaron's motives were behind that, whether he just wanted to break things off with her or, uh, or anything like that. The woman could not provide the letter or produce the letter. Um, and, and I know that uh, I had to, and the prosecution was going to go under the claim and under the theory. I, I guess I should backpedal for a moment because this case was known as the spilled drink case. Okay, there was claims that a guy spilled a drink on Aaron 
And that incensed him so much that he went two hours later and killed them. Uh, a bunch of hogwash, okay? If somebody spills a drink on Aaron and he gets upset, uh, Aaron could easily kick his ass. There's no, <laughs> this guy was 5'7", okay? Aaron was huge. Uh, nothing of the kind occurred, and we completely debunked this theory in, in the, in the uh, case, in the prosecution's case, and they knew it. Uh, he was only in the club for nine minutes. Uh, not a single patron saw this incident, um, and, and there were other things that we found. To, to, for example, a photo that he took with a fan and the fan's testimony. We completely destroyed this theory, the spill drink theory. So they needed something else. And then uh, it, it, during the trial, they decided that they were going to try uh, another theory, and that was that they believed Aaron was gay and that um, they also believed that because he was in the closet, that he, if someone bumped into him, he felt he had to overcompensate as a man. Uh, so as the judge put it, um, so what you're saying, prosecutor, is that a, a, a gay man in the closet is more likely to commit murder than someone who's out. And that was pretty much their theory. Uh, it was obvious the judge wasn't buying it. We were threatening to raise a, all kinds of hell over it. So the prosecution didn't go there. So do you believe he was gay? You know what? What I believe, uh, his, his sexuality, I, I really don't give it much thought at all because... I, I could care less where my, where, what my clients do in, in their bedrooms. Do you think that if there was repressed homosexuality with Aaron that that may have triggered him to want to commit suicide? No, I don't think so. I think the CTE and the science makes it clear. Uh, if you look at, you know, you can get into innuendo and you can get into speculation over these issues because they're social issues, but you can't argue against the, the science or the research. Uh, his brain was severely damaged, and that's why I believe he killed himself. He was accused of three murders. People inside that jail say that he boasted about a fourth head, quote unquote, that he'd killed somebody else. Are you sitting here today saying Aaron Hernandez never committed one murder? I'm saying this because I, I can say this. I know the two Boston murders he did not do. I did not represent him in the first case with Odin Lloyd. And after examining the evidence, I have a reasonable doubt that he committed that. Beyond that, I can't say any more. You know, I wasn't there, you weren't there, and no one was there, so I can only go by the evidence. And, and that I'm willing to say, and that's as far as I can, I can say, and, and say with any credibility. To football fans, he was a superstar in the making, perhaps even already a superstar. And as a Super Bowl winner, he was revered by so many, not only New England Patriot fans, but those who admire the game and realized his talent. What don't we know about Aaron Hernandez that you can tell us? Aaron was uh, a lot more than what uh, has been written about him. I mean, I don't think a, a, a news report can define you or me. Uh, I, he was a loving father. He, he adored his daughter. Uh, he loved Shayana. Uh, it wasn't a perfect relationship. Uh, they had their ups and downs. Uh, but one thing I know, uh, you can question his sexuality all day long. The bond between those two individuals was something I have never, ever, ever seen in two individuals. And I cannot tell you how many times he expressed his love for her and, and his regrets for how much he's hurt her and how he couldn't be with her when he was in prison. Um, a lot of this is laid out in the book and I describe how some of the things they went through together. Uh, he's known her since elementary school. This was the love of his life and um, she knew him better than anyone. And a final question and it's a personal one. As a defense attorney that is often perhaps looked at by the public in not great circumstances, someone who was able to get Casey Anthony off her charges. How do you continue to practice or how do you reconcile that you had all this faith in this person like Aaron Hernandez, somebody whom you never believe committed these murders, yet 
you were working on such a prolific path to get him to freedom. And as I said earlier, there was seemingly light at the end of the tunnel and then they take their own life. How does that affect you? It was really difficult. I am I, not going to hold that back. I, um, I grew quite fond of him. And um, when this all happened, I was in shock. You initially thought it was murder. You didn't no, think- I, that's, that's not true. Uh, you know, TMZ all right. uh, interviewed me <laughs> and they asked me, what do you think? And I said, well, we're not accepting the official word until we investigate right. the case. And they, turned, they made that a headline, lawyer thinks it's murder. Um, that, so those words never came out of my mouth. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm one of those, you know, I, I guess, you know, I am what I, I I'm not just, a, I don't just practice law, it's who I am. I, I believe in looking at the evidence, looking at the facts, and then kind of analyzing them and make it, and basing my own conclusions based on that. So when it came to Aaron and his death, it, it really just threw me off completely. And, um, I know there are other people in my office, other lawyers on the team, who it affected them tremendously because we all were really fond of him. And, and this isn't, these aren't things you learn in law school. And, and this, I can go the rest of my career and practice law another 40 years and never experience something like this again. And I certainly hope I don't. Why did you write the book? I wrote the book for two reasons. Um, one, I, I felt a lot, had a, a lot about him is not being told. The good side of him, uh, again, I, I don't think a news report can define you. And the other reason I, is I wanted his daughter to know the other side of him other than what's written. And I'm taking the proceeds that I get from, from this book and I'm going to be setting up a college fund for her. And that's already in the works. And you know, as you know, you don't write books for money nowadays. So <laughs> to me, it really was a, a, uh, a personal project that I felt uh, unfinished business and, and I really wanted to do. Well, the book jacket itself says from Barbara Walters, this is a very smart lawyer. Geraldo Riviera says one of the greatest trial lawyers of all time. And ABC News quoted as saying, Bayer's courtroom strategy is stunning. I don't think anyone can disagree with that because you're able to get Aaron Hernandez off the uh, double murder charge and, of course, Casey Anthony and Jose Baez. From myself to you, thank you very much for answering all my questions and uh, everyone has to get a copy of Unnecessary Roughness. Inside the trial and final days of Aaron Hernandez, Jose Baez, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. The big unanswered question when it comes to Aaron Hernandez. Would he have been given the opportunity for a second chance to prove his innocence? And if he was innocent, why then take your own life if there was seemingly light at the end of the tunnel? This has been a jam-packed edition of All Rise. It's episode 13, season one. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to give us a rating. And of course, don't forget my other podcast, Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood. Chapter 7 is out now and it is explosive. A never-before-heard interview with the man who pulled Natalie's lifeless body out of the water. And what he has to say is spectacular and startling to suggest that the Hollywood starlet didn't have to die. That's Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood, out now. And you've been listening to All Rise, the only podcast with the guts to tell it like it is.